If you've listened to this show before, you hear the phrase, where the economy meets real life. And it can mean a lot of different things. The bills you pay, the jobs you do, whether or not that kind of job is going to be around in 20 years. And so this week, we have a special show for you. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is an Encore Marketplace Weekend from May 2017. Yes, where the economy meets real life. From 2015 to 2017, we checked in repeatedly with the mayors of Dalton, Georgia, Gillette, Wyoming, and Corvallis, Oregon. Three small cities with three very different industries, people, and politics. And then we went to visit each of them. Today, we put all of their stories together to give you a well-rounded picture of real-life economies across the country. First up, we went to Dalton. If you're standing on carpet right now, there's a good chance it was made in Dalton. When you pull into town, you see a big sign declaring it the carpet capital of the world. Steam from the plants streaks up into the sky. Huge warehouses run alongside roads and rail tracks. You know you're in a manufacturing city. But downtown has this intimate red brick feel. It's almost stereotypically cute. Right down to the Oakwood Cafe, where everyone is a regular. And yeah, we know, it's a cliche for the out-of-town reporters to stop in at the diner. But we went there to meet this guy. The lady behind you was my uh, kid's pre-K teacher. I go to church with the lady on the left. Lady comes in every day. Ace was one of my best friend's dads. And she works at the bank. That's Casey Carpenter. He owns the place. He grew up here, runs a bunch of businesses, and he just gets Dalton. You may not work for the carpet mills, but your business services the carpet mills, or your customers get their paycheck from the carpet mills. So it is a, uh, it is a, it is a huge driver in the economy. Carpet mills are doing bad. Everybody's doing bad. I mean, it just is what it is. Dalton took a huge hit during the recession. When the housing market collapsed, carpet went right down with it. In March of 2009, the unemployment rate here was over 13%. Recovering from that meant changing both what the city makes, more diversified and recession-proof products, and how the carpet business is run. Smarter, leaner, with more technology and automation. And that includes basically growing the next generation of skilled workers. I'm uh, Brian Cooksey. I'm the Director of uh, Operations Training and Development with Shaw. That's Shaw as in Shaw Industries. It's one of the biggest flooring companies in the country, and it's owned by Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. And when I say Shaw is aiming to bring in a young workforce, I mean young. One of the things we started about six years ago was a middle school summer camp. Yeah, summer camp. Cooksey says when they first started talking to 7th and 8th graders... When you said, do you want to be an engineer, we realized that most of these students thought that was a train conductor. And so we had to talk about, you know, what does really an engineer do... And so we we brought in some of our engineering talent to talk to them. They learned 3D design. They learned uh, electronic circuit boards. They learned a little bit about programming so that they could get a feel for what these folks do every day. His point, of course, is that these are not the manufacturing jobs of the 80s and 90s that many of these kids' parents had. The floor of the Shaw factory perfectly captures the transition between old and new. Massive multi-story machines run molten plastic through a series of sieves to create fibers. So once we've broken down our spin packs, we'll burn them off. All of that hard polymer that was on there. Those fibers will become yarn, which will eventually become carpet. It still looks and sounds like a typical factory, and there are still a lot of people on the floor keeping the machines running. But there are some clear signs of the future like Larry, Moe, and Curly, the huge laser-controlled robots that drive around the floor moving products. The future of manufacturing is more pronounced at the nearby engineered floors plant. 
It's a much smaller company than Shaw, one of the newest in Dalton and more high-tech. We got a tour and a golf cart from executive James Leslie. You know that scene in the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark where they're driving through the warehouse where all the things are stacked? I feel like that's what we're in, except it's all just yarn. This is a very, very large facility. It's, It's probably the largest one that we know of in the world for carpet. Huge rolls of carpet are stacked all the way to the ceiling. Everything is astonishingly clean, bright, and orderly. There are computer stations sprinkled between the machines, and then a few people who keep things running. I am Guadalupe Guido, and I am 23 years old. She goes by Lupe and has worked here for almost two years. She's moved up four times, driving a forklift, working as a production clerk, and now she's a tufting scheduler, essentially programming the final steps in the carpet process. Guido makes $15.50 an hour. That's up from $11 when she started. I've had a lot of opportunities here with the company. Moving up pretty quick, and I don't feel like I'm going to stop no time soon. (laughs) Her entire family works in the carpet mills. Her parents came from Mexico to work here. Initially, they didn't want her to follow in their footsteps with a factory job. But, like I said, these are not those jobs anymore. Everything is computer-based now. So there is a lot of things that we have to learn. But it's always a good thing to learn about technology and knowing new stuff. When she was younger, Guido thought about being a lawyer. But now she makes her own money, goes to one of the local colleges at night, and will get a bachelor's in human resource management this spring. She says she wants to run a plant like this one day. Lupe Guido is part of Dalton's big Latino population, 48% of the city. Those demographics make for some complicated politics in an area that voted largely for President Trump. Which brings me to the politician we came to visit in the first place, Mayor Dennis Mock, who gave us a driving tour of Dalton. We'll start with our high school, city high school. He's been in office for about two years. His background is in business, not politics, and he still works for the family produce company most mornings before heading to City Hall. He says he supported Trump because he was tired of establishment politics. For me personally, and I think for a lot of other folks, he's actually made some strides and made some steps that we all felt like needed to be done. He likes the idea of a fellow businessman in the White House and fewer regulations. But part of President Trump's rhetoric on immigration has caused trouble, especially for the undocumented residents here who are afraid a trip to jail for a minor offense could mean they get deported. Dalton is five minutes from the Whitfield County Detention Center, which works closely with Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Dennis Mock says it's his obligation to be the mayor for everybody living in Dalton. I asked him what kind of a city he wants for the future. He answered by driving us out to a reservoir that's being developed as a recreation area. It's nestled between two mountain ranges, surrounded by trees, and you can hear whippoorwills. It's gorgeous. To come out here like a year from now, what would you like to see? I guarantee you we'll see people walking the, the loop around this lake. Uh, we'll see people out here fishing. We'll see classrooms out there on that point Yeah. Uh, from the schools out here doing their nature studies. Hopefully we'll see a, a kayak or a canoe and maybe a a rowing team from the college out here practicing. It's part of his strategy to create a 21st century Dalton that will appeal to any company that might bring good jobs to town. I consider this economic development um, 
when we have companies that come here and want to know what their families can do and what their employees can do for entertainment. This will be one of them. He invited us to come back when it's open, and for me, an avid angler, to fish. In a few years, he hopes this place will be full of people who work in the city, live and play in the nature around it, and have modern manufacturing jobs that give them a good life. As you heard, Dalton is 48% Latino. Many people came here from Mexico to work in the carpet factories. Now their kids are in high school or college, like Marlon Hernandez-Garcia. She and her family came here illegally from Mexico. We talked to her at Dalton State College. She was part of a group of student orientation leaders we met. Of the six students we talked to, five had immigrated from other countries. Here's Marlon's story in her own words. My name is Marlon Hernandez-Garcia. I'm 23 years old, and I am from San Pablo Pejo, Guanajuato, Mexico. Both my parents work at Shaw right now. They've devoted 10 years to working at Shaw, and it's hard work, but they don't shy away from hard work. We come from a small village mainly based in agriculture, so (laughs) they know what it means to work hard and with your hands. They've always told us it's okay if you work in a factory. You know, it pays well, uh, but they've really fostered working with your mind than working with your hands because they know how hard it is. I mean, we've probably all had those days when your parents come back tired and complaining, but they still go back to it every single day. We came here illegally, me and my family. Um, So both my parents, me and my twin brother were illegal. So we went through the same troubles that a lot of undocumented people go through, trying to get a job without a social security card, trying to go to school, trying to get all these programs that benefit permanent residents and citizens. Um, And so we paid hefty fines to become permanent residents. One of the things that a lot of people don't understand about becoming documented is it takes money. It takes a lot of money to become documented. And from the village that I that I live in, you know, if you work in a car factory for eight hours, you get six American dollars, and it takes about a grand to try and document yourself. And you can never, you can never get to the point where you can safely go into America and try to find these opportunities. And when people talk about illegal immigration or they talk about legal immigration. I think that's lost the economics of it. So when we got the opportunity to become American citizens, we took it. Uh, My mom took the test first. Um, We were all very encouraging of her, Uh, but sometimes it's a little on the hard side if you don't know uh, or understand English very well because there's an English component to it. So she memorized all the questions. Of a hundred questions that they could possibly ask you, she memorized all of them and the answers. She has given 20 years of her life to America, to its economy, and 10 years to the Dalton community. So she wanted to become a citizen so she could give more, have the chance to vote in our election. And she passed. (laughs) So my brother immediately went next. He passed. And so I was like, if they can do it, I can do it. You're listening to a repeat show from May 2017. And if you know Marketplace, you know we love our numbers. 
kind of our signature thing. So let's dig into some important ones with our producers Sarah Menendez and Tony Wagner as they bring us news by the numbers. Hit it, guys. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is... Two to four million. That's how many dollars a dusty old bag is expected to fetch at auction. Sotheby's is offering the bag up on July 20th, the 48th anniversary of Apollo 11 moon landing. So what's the connection between a bag and a space mission? Well, nearly all of the equipment from Apollo 11 is housed at the Smithsonian. But this bag was bought by a private citizen back in 2015 for just 995 bucks. Turns out the dust inside is from the moon. That's one great financial leap. Mm -mm. Nope. Next number is $1 billion. That's the estimated cost of repairs to California's Pacific Coast Highway after a big landslide this past week. The highway repairs are an annual expense for the state. It cost nearly $700 million in 2016 alone. For now, the road is closed, creating long commutes for people who live in the region. Another potential side effect? Hiking and outdoor tourism in the area may suffer until the quarter mile of highway opens up again. No word on when that'll be. $1.3 trillion. That's many dollars women in the U.S. still owe in student loan debt. A report by the American Association of University Women found that the majority of the 44 million student loan borrowers are women. Women also take out other types of loans at higher rates. Plus, it also takes them longer to pay off their debt because of the gender pay gap. The study is calling for policymakers to make bigger efforts to reduce or eliminate student debt. Yeah, I wouldn't mind a little help over here. This week, we're revisiting some road trips we took to three small American cities. If Dalton, Georgia can tell us about the future of American manufacturing, then maybe our next stop can shed a little light on the energy industry. Not long after we went to Dalton, we headed out west in February to Gillette, Wyoming, to see the mayor there and learn about her city. Gillette is about the same size as Dalton, a little over 30,000 people. And like Dalton, its economy is deeply dependent on one industry, extraction. That is, getting stuff out of the ground. Oil, gas, uranium, and especially coal. This is Western mining, not the underground maze you might imagine when you think of a coal mine but huge open pits. You could fit the local airport inside one. They look like quarries with cliffs for sides. Looking down from the edge above, the 50-foot trucks inside seem like matchbox cars. Gino Palazzari, who does PR for the city of Gillette, took us out to the very windy Eagle Butte mine where we could see down into the pit. What they do is they use uh, very large shovels and uh, they remove what's called the overburden, which is basically the topsoil. And uh, so that they can get down to the coal itself, it can be anywhere from 5 feet below the surface to 50 feet below the surface. Wyoming produces about 40% of American coal. And this county, Campbell County, produces more than 80% of Wyoming's coal. It's been a rough couple of years for coal and for Gillette. Residents felt punished by environmental regulations and the shift away from coal on the energy market. Coal production fell to its lowest level in decades. The mines in town laid off hundreds of workers, and most people were bracing for Hillary Clinton to win the election and things to get harder. Everyone in our community kind of took that as it would be kind of the the final nail in the coffin or something because we'd already had a tough year. That's Louise Carter King, the mayor of Gillette, and the woman we came to see. On election day, she says things changed overnight. It was like a switch had been 
flipped in this town. People went to restaurants that next day. They were full. People were bustling. Just the whole attitude changed in the community. It's just the attitude and, and hope, and that was just great. Carter King has been in office for about two years. Her father, Herb Carter, was the city's mayor in the 80s. Back then, this was a boom and bust town. Men came to work in the mines and lived in hotels or trailers. When the job was done, they went back to wherever they were from. Gillette syndrome was the era's shorthand for problems like crime and high costs in a transient place. Mayor Carter King is trying to build a more stable Gillette, one where people stay and raise their kids. There are more restaurants now, tons of sports fields, new subdivisions that meet Wyoming grassland. All of this depends on the industries that make the city's economy run. It's not an exaggeration to say that many people here feel like President Trump is bringing their town back to life. Already, he's reversed two Obama-era coal regulations. He opposes the Clean Power Plan, which aims to cut carbon emissions and shift away from coal power. And even though he gives the mayor some pause... He has... He's... uh, I don't know what to say about him, but... (laughs) As far as energy goes, we feel that he is good for our community. It is very good for our community. And uh, as a mayor, that is uh, our top concern, my top concern. Thanks to coal, Campbell County traditionally brings in more revenue than any other county in the state. And revenue from taxes on the industry goes to the city, the schools, and into funding places that help create a more stable, permanent community. You can see this play out at places like the Campbell County Recreation Center. It's got three basketball courts, a lap pool, leisure pool, a party room for kids, and a 42-foot climbing wall that's a replica of Devil's Tower, the Butte and National Monument that's an hour away. There he is, Mr. Anderson. How are you doing this fine day, sir? The day we went, the former city attorney was practicing his belays. And yes, people here are optimistic about the economy and the extraction industry under the new administration. But no matter who's in the White House, they know the city has to diversify. Because there is one uncomfortable truth about the future of the coal market. Natural gas is in competition for power generation. That's Patrick Ladke. He and his brother Paul run Cyclone Drilling, an oil rig company started by their father. They grew up here, know tons of people in town, and just have a great sense of what makes this place run. The downturn in coal was less to do with regulation by the federal government and more to do with the price of natural gas. And that's a difficult thing to say out loud in Gillette, where coal is part of the way of life. This is a city that is proud of what it does. And many people feel like the only reputation coal has is something dirty and demonized, when here, it's what feeds families. Here's Patrick Ladke's brother, Paul. What fails to make the press is that these people are out here providing a service, providing a product that the American people need. When the light switch goes on, it comes from coal generation or natural gas uh, production. And when you go to the filling station, you fill up with oil from uh, a domestic source. The economics of coal may be hard to escape. But the economy is picking up a little here. Even though more work is automated these days, the coal mines have hired some workers back, and the Latke brothers are getting ready to put another rig in the field to drill for oil. 25 of their rigs have been sitting idle in a yard while they wait for the energy markets to shift. 
Across town, we went to see a business that represents the future of Gillette. It's called Atlas Carbon, where they use coal to make activated carbon. The company's VP of operations, Jim Ford, explained what that is. We took one of our uh, uh, employees here and said, okay, you have an hour and you have $50. Go to Walmart and see what you can find with activated carbon in it. You know, uh, kitty litter to uh, also things uh, like cosmetics, shampoos, uh, facial scrubs. And no, they don't make cosmetics here. More like huge chemical filters for water and air that remove pollutants like mercury from coal and power plants. Right now, there are 12 people who work at Atlas Carbon. So everything that you we're walking towards right now is the feed-in. The company can't fill the gap left by the mine layoffs, but its leaders hope to hire more people as the local economy and their production process pick up. Michael Jones is the chief technology officer and co-founder of the company. You'll see a lot of signs around town that say, uh, stay strong, Gillette, and, and uh, you know, that uh, the community's really kind of rallied around, and you know, we think it's going to improve, and, um, you know, those kind of things are, are, are bright for the community going forward. Atlas Carbon is banking on the future of coal and extraction, not just in its own business making activated carbon, but in power plants where burning fossil fuels creates electricity. Like Dry Fork Station, it's one of the newest coal-fired power plants in the country. It runs on coal extracted only yards away and uses activated carbon to clean up its emissions. Gillette is proud of it and its new technology. The plant manager, Tom Stalkup, told us about its grand opening. There were so many people that didn't think we were running, and it was one of the questions from the crowd, were you even running? And we said, we're not only running, but we're at full capacity right now. There's no smoke in the sky, and that matters to people here even though activated carbon doesn't remove all emissions or greenhouse gases. People in Gillette are sensitive to the charge that they don't care about the environment that they live in. Here's the mayor, Louise Carter-King, again. Why would we do something to ruin our own air? Why would we want to, you know, do that? And that's part of the balance Gillette is trying to maintain between the industry that keeps the city going and the natural beauty and quality of life that make people want to stay here. Like I mentioned earlier, Gillette is working hard to be a place where families want to stay. And that includes growing its local college. You heard Marlon Hernandez-Garcia tell her story in Dalton. Now you're going to meet her counterparts in Gillette. Gillette College started as a commuter school, but it's slowly becoming bigger and more students live here. About 85% of the student population is from Campbell County, and students come here for a lot of different reasons. Sam Harmon is from Star Valley, Wyoming. She's 19 and studying health science to be an athletic trainer. I am definitely a Wyoming girl. I think a lot of people are undereducated on some of the industries in Wyoming. I know a lot of people are really against the oil fields and mining, which, honestly, they live off the stuff that we mine in oil, you know? If people want cars, they're going to have to deal with that. If they want phones, they're going to have to deal with us having mining and having oil. That's something that our society depends on. And, you know, people attack it for being bad when all reality, those industries are helpful. Before the election, Sam was worried. 
but to say things turned around for her on election night is an understatement. It was amazing. What was it, like one in the morning when they officially announced that he won? I could not sleep that night. I was so, so scared that Hillary would win. Terrified. So I couldn't sleep. And I was just constantly checking the polls like, oh, he's so close. He's so close. It's so exciting. And when they finally like officially announced that they won, I remember like jumping up and down, running out of my room into our living room, jumping on my roommate, screaming, he won, he won, he won, he won. She's freaking out. And then I call one of my coworkers because she's like, well, I'm going to bed. Call me. Tell me who wins. I call her and I'm like, Trump's our new president. And we're like freaking out. It was like one of the most relieving feelings that I've ever had. Now, Sam says she can see a bright future for her home state. I guess I have hopes, you know, that Wyoming's going to be okay, that the industries are going to pick back up, that, you know, things are going to turn around and look great. I mean, they are turning around. They're looking way better for our state right now. While Obama was president and while the election year was going on, uh, my dad had to take three jobs just to, and my mom had two, just to get our family through Um, because budget cuts were so hard. But now that Trump is president, my dad has been able to give up one of his jobs and my mom has given up one of hers. And it's starting to get there. Like, our hope is starting to become a reality. Then there's Kaylee Bass. She's also 19. And like Sam, she sees just how intertwined her home and the people she loves are with the extraction industry. I come from a family where we've only ever worked industry jobs here. Before I was born, my mom worked on the railroad. She took a six-week maternity leave and then was right back to the railroad for another 13 years after that. And my father, he was a tool pusher on the drilling rigs. And then after he decided he was over that, he went to the coal mines for another 20 years. So I think that a lot of people in this country forget that they work in offices, cubicles. In Wyoming, that is our cubicle. And if those are taken away... We have nowhere to go. I mean, so many businesses run off of the success of those industries and including my family. If my family didn't have those opportunities, I have no idea where we would be. But I think a lot of people forget that that is our home and that is our our lives here. Kaylee wants to be a doctor. And after next semester, she plans to transfer to the University of Wyoming and then go on to Washington State. But her home is in Gillette. And the thought of leaving is both exciting and a little scary. I will be the first one to go on to a bachelor's, to go on to a PhD, to go on to MD. In my family, we all take care of each other. And my my biggest dream is graduating college and being able to take care of my family. You know, if someone needs help on their rent, if someone needs help on anything, like I want to be there for them. The University of Wyoming and Washington actually do a program that if you graduate, they'll pay for so much of your tuition if you come back and practice for so many years and the state of Wyoming. So if I follow through with that program, I'll probably come back here for a little bit. But I'm kind of a bird. I kind of want to go everywhere. You know, I I don't think I really want to settle down after I get my so many years done. I think I want to actually be a traveling doctor for a while and give back to others in that way. And But for retirement and that like, probably I can see myself having a small little cabin <laughs> and my own peace and quiet. So I'm not sure, but I know I'll be back. The last student we spoke with was Michael Welch. He's 37, originally from Casper, Wyoming. He served in the Army from 2002 to 2007, did two tours in Iraq. And for Michael, going to Gillette College was about rebuilding his life. For a long time, for probably about 10 years or so, um, 
I just kind of was lost, you know. I didn't know where my place was in the world, you know, and um, I didn't feel like I had a purpose or anything. So anyway, after I had went through treatment and stuff because I had suffered from PTSD really bad, um, I realized that I can still do anything that I want to do in my life, you know, and that there was still a whole lot of things uh, that I wanted to accomplish. And getting a college education was one of those. I was awarded a house through a program called Operation Homefront. Um, and they they get veterans, you know, at the time I was homeless and all this stuff. And um, But they help you become a homeowner. So uh, in June, hopefully, you know, um, I will have met the criteria and everything and the house will be deeded to me. Uh, you know, which is is a blessing. You know, and it's it's amazing. My plans are I want to sell the house, but I want to stay right here in Wyoming. You know, buy property, and start. You know, I don't want to say away from everything, but just kind of have my own little parad- piece of paradise. You know, these tattoos here, I've I've been working on getting them removed. They actually said kill Haji. When I came back from Iraq, I had a lot of hate. Out of eight. Uh, I was going down a bad road. I really was, you know, but things are good now. Our last trip in March 2017 was to Corvallis, Oregon. It's a college town. Oregon State University is there. The area votes Democratic. Indeed, it's a sanctuary city with a sanctuary campus. The issues Corvallis wrestles with are really about town, gown, and growth. They're good problems to have, mainly how to use some of that gown brainpower to create a startup hub without damaging the city's culture. I'm going to be totally honest here. There are reporting assignments that involve harsh conditions, adversarial interviews, even some physical danger. This was not one of those. That one will perk you up a little bit. That's Nick Arsner offering me a ridiculously Oregon-sounding beer, a cosmic cold brew. It's a stout, cold-brewed, locally roasted coffee. Wow. I did not think that this would be for me, but this is really good. It's very, like, velvety. Yeah. Good at 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. <laughs> Arsner and his wife Kristen started Block 15 Brewing Company here in Corvallis in 2008. We went to visit the newest of their three locations on the south side of the Willamette River. There's a beautiful view of trees and mountains from the restaurant up front, and there are huge tanks for brewing beer in the back. So one side over here we have our grain room. That's where we store our grain. Right on the outside of the wall is the big silo you saw when you drove in. Because of Oregon State and its 25,000 undergrads, there's a real mix here in Corvallis. Students, faculty, visitors, and residents who live here because it's a beautiful, small city. Arsner's built a thriving but small business catering to them. I don't know, there's just something to be said for having your finger on things and being a part of things. And we're much larger than I ever thought we would be, but we're we're not larger than we need to be. Larger than we need to be. There's a strong movement in town for businesses to grow, to capitalize on ideas from the university and community and turn them into profitable companies. And so over more coffee, we met up with someone trying to make that happen. 
I'm Caroline Cummings, and I'm a venture catalyst for RAIN, the Regional Accelerator and Innovation Network. What does venture catalyst mean? I work with entrepreneurs and innovators who have big ideas, and they want to launch either nationally or internationally. Think of Cummings as a matchmaker. She and her network, RAIN, yes, like the weather, work with Oregon State's Advantage Accelerator to help launch companies here. One's making everything from food and beverages to a new kind of suture for emergency rooms. Over the last two years since we've been tracking the economic impact of rain, there's been about 50 companies who have gone through the accelerator programs. Those 50 companies have generated around $5 million in revenue, and they've raised around $10 million in capital. And that's created about 105 jobs. Their big success story is Agility Robotics. This is our second robot. We met a robot. Her name is Cassie. Jonathan Hurst, the Oregon State professor who helped create her, introduced us. Imagine an ostrich, but with a much, much smaller body to go with the big ostrich legs and uh, no neck or head. Cassie is named for the bird cassowary, and she, or it, I mean, it's a robot, is the main product of Agility Robotics. And Cassie can walk like a giant bird. That's her moving across the floor. Hurst and two other co-founders created Agility Robotics after he went through the OSU Accelerator. The money wasn't hard to come by. Lots of venture capitalists want to fund robot companies. He needed something else. We're not looking for just dollars. We're looking for help and partnerships. I've been a professor, but I have never started a company before. Oregon State has a stake in the company. Agility's technology is licensed from the university. And all you need to do is watch Cassie walk to know that her mobility will be wildly valuable. Imagine a future where a driverless FedEx or UPS van pulls up to your house with a package. There's an array of solutions for how do you get the packages and things from those delivery vans to the doorstep. And you see the the, uh, drones, flying drones, some wheeled vehicles, but none of those are going to handle stairs and crowded urban environments, and, and legs certainly can. Cassie can step over a flower pot, avoid the family dog. And Hearst says there's more we can't even contemplate yet. It's like imagining what smartphones will do for us, you know, back when they imagined them for the original Star Trek. So, okay, why keep this company in Oregon? It seems like a natural fit for Silicon Valley. And that's when Jonathan Hearst looks at me like I'm crazy. It's not a competitive environment. It's not where, you know, one person's success detracts from another's. It's that a rising tide lifts all boats. I really, really appreciate that culture here. And they got that. Their company is right by the river in Albany, Oregon, 10 miles from Corvallis. They moved over here because there's more space and it's cheaper. The mayor of Corvallis, Biff Traber, would love for agility to be based in his city limits. He's an evangelist for growth, but wants to avoid the kind of problems that startups brought to Silicon Valley. Gentrification, rising prices that make it tough for the middle class to live there. We took a drive with him out of Corvallis's cute downtown, past lush green lawns and trees draped with moss. So now I'm heading out along the river, uh, but I was going to take you out by the HP campus. That's Hewlett-Packard. In the 90s, it employed about 10,000 people in town. Now, fewer than 2,000 people work there, but the company leases out this building space. It now has a large number of our startup businesses and long-term businesses. 
Traber, who is a former software executive, wants new startups to move in there. Still, he needs to balance growth with Coralis's coffee shop, microbrewery, college town vibe. There's a group of people in town who would like Corvallis to stay the way it is or the way it was 20 or 40 years ago. But Oregon State has added 10,000 more students in the past two decades. That's led to a housing crunch. Developers and the college are rushing to build more apartments and multifamily homes. If Traber can help make that happen, maybe on the south side of the river where we had that cosmic cold brew, then he's well on his way to solving some pretty nice problems to have. trip to Corvallis wasn't all robots and beer. There were donuts, too. Okay, fine, I know. But anyway, Benny Augeri, the owner of Benny's Donuts, pitched his business like a startup. He went through the Advantage Accelerator, just like Agility Robotics. And his business grew fast. I mean, really fast. Here's how he describes it. I was a senior with a Bachelor of Science in Geology from local Oregon State, and I realized my senior year I didn't want to do geology. So I was added a double degree in business innovation management. I think I had like $3,000 of student loan left. I took 2000 of that and totally invested it in my startup. That got me a fryer, a sublease of a kitchen, I had enough ingredients for 2,000 donuts for the first week of soft launch. So we set up the website so you could order donuts to your door in three clicks. First night, Tuesday night, I had enough for 2,000 donuts for the week, remember. Within an hour of the first night, we had sold all 2,000 donuts, had to shut the website down. To me, at the time, I was like, the business is imploding. This is horrible. My rule of thumb is everything takes three days. If something starts, it takes three days to peak, right? And if something's bad, it takes three days to get to its worst. So by Thursday, so Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we went through 2,400 donuts in nine minutes. You know, you're soft launching, so you're taking a risk. Like, this is the jumping. And I jumped over a canyon and landed on, like, a field of donuts. I, I, it kind of validated this like whole business model that I spent six months making. I went from $2,000 investment to by April, we had six figures in sales. And then it was like, okay, what is our goal? Where are we going with this? It was just the fastest growth imaginable. And so we took all that money, a business Oregon loan of 20 grand, and we did the entire build out of this restaurant ourselves. Everything you see is it's local wood because we're poor and resourceful and it just came out really good. And so essentially it became this like big city vibes in small town Corvallis. September, we opened the storefront. We grew by 602% in the first month of opening. And we've had about 4 or 5% growth consistently each month since opening. I didn't heed my own advice when I opened the storefront. I didn't plan for the worst. And then the worst happened. Like, line out the door for like a month, which is great. Like, I love lines. Don't get me wrong. I love lines. But no matter how good you can make it look to your customers, it feels like on the back end. I always say, like, the employee can look over their shoulder and there's the assistant manager or the shift lead. The assistant manager can look over the shoulder and they see the general manager. The general manager looks over her shoulder when there's a problem and they see you. And when you look over your shoulder to solve a problem, there is nobody.
It's time now for the Marketplace Quiz. That's when we ask people in the spotlight questions about work and money and hear the lessons they've learned throughout their careers. This week, we dig into the archives for some wise words. Hi, my name is Heather Haverleski, and I write the Ask Polly advice column for New York Magazine. I'm also the author of a brand new book called How to Be a Person in the World. Fill in the blank. Money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you. I just keep thinking lipstick. (laughs) (laughs) My new obsession is lipstick. All I want whenever I um, am out and about is a new shade of lipstick. It's the strangest thing. I haven't worn lipstick since I was about 24 years old. I used to wear this MAC lipstick called um, Tramp, I think, or or (laughs) Slut. Lipstick is expensive, too, but I feel like it's almost like a buying candy for me now. I feel immediate thrill at owning a new shade of lipstick. And it doesn't have to look good on me. I don't even care anymore. I just, if it looks strange, all the better. What is the hardest part about your job that no one knows? One of the best things about my job and one of the hardest things about my job is that um, when you're a freelance writer, like I am, You have some editors who are like your best friend that saves you from sounding like an idiot. Um, And then you sometimes work with random editors who can be like your worst enemy who wants you to sound like an idiot. (laughs) Which, I mean, it's very rare. I I am mostly very lucky. But the the kind of merry-go-round of editors that you get into when you write freelance pieces can be kind of intense. What is something you bought that you now completely regret buying? The main thing that comes to mind is the most expensive thing I ever bought. When I was 32, I was going through a really hard breakup, and I had just purchased a house. Um, I'd taken my entire worldly life savings and put it into a down payment on a house. Um, And because I was feeling a little reckless, I immediately took out a home equity loan and bought a Lexus with it, (laughs) which is really stupid. I met with a financial planner and the financial planner said, you know, I I said, I've, I've owned my car for 10 years and I'm thinking of getting another Honda. And he said, that's so smart. If you're going to hold on to it for 10 years, that's great. Or you can get a a used luxury car. (laughs) And I was like, really? It's sensible to buy a used luxury car? So I immediately went out and I was like, I'm going to buy a Lexus. My dad um, died when I was 25 years old and he uh, was singing the praises of Lexus uh, and had just bought a Lexus right before he died. Um, And I drove his Lexus around Durham, North Carolina right after he died. And it was kind of like a way of being in touch with him and missing him to drive that crazy, insanely nice car around town. It was a giant mistake. I loved it. I called it my year of luxury at the time. And then it it broke down about 15 times, and it cost me a lot, a lot, a lot of money. You know, you know it's not right. Like, I knew all about the stupidity of having a home equity loan finance my car. I knew a lot of things, but I didn't care. There are lots of, lots of emotions and regrets are mixed up in that purchase. What is your most prized possession? I have a teddy bear I've had since I was, uh, hmm about one year old uh, that I just love. And I used to have nightmares about um, 
losing my teddy bear. I guess I've kind of transferred my teddy bear energy onto my kids and my dogs now because I have nightmares about uh, the dogs getting lost or something happening to the kids instead of the teddy bear. But I think the teddy bear was kind of my first inkling of that kind of feeling of this is my most important thing. And if anyone ever does anything to this bear, uh, my life will be ruined. Um, that, <laughs> it's Is that a prized possession? I don't know. It's almost like a that's just a bundle of ragged teddy bear anxiety. <laughs> uh. What advice do you wish someone gave you before you started your career? I guess the piece of advice that I, that I could always use and sometimes followed much with, with great rewards is follow your, your instincts. Um, I think the one thing that my mom taught me as a kid um, was you should never be miserable at any job. Life is too short to be miserable at a job. And I've always kind of... Um, I've never allowed myself to stick with things that are making me unhappy uh, job-wise, career-wise. So I needed to be reminded of that when I was younger at times. Um, when you're pursuing certain career goals and they just feel worthless and you don't like it and you're not, you know, and, and even everyone around you is saying, but that's such a great job. How could you ever leave that job? But you just want to leave the job. It just does not feel valuable to you. You got to leave that job. I, it sounds a little bit crazy. It's a little bit like financing a Lexus with your home equity loan to say, leave any job that's making you miserable. But, um, you know, you're going to have a lot of different jobs uh, throughout the course of a career. That's the way careers are these days. And it's good to explore. It's good to have new experiences. It's so good. It's so good for a writer or anyone creative in particular to take risks. So I would say follow your instincts and be bold. Mighty forces will come to your aid. Heather Haverleski is also featured in the Marketplace Weekend special, Graduating into the Economy, all part of our look into life after college. What do graduates need to know to get their economic lives off to the right start? We talk building credit, deciding whether to rent or buy, and why plants are getting all the love of millennials. You can check it out along with other Marketplace Weekend shows. Just go to Marketplace.org. Marketplace Weekend production has come to an end, but we have a wealth, no pun intended, of stories you can listen to from the past four years, like issues around home health aids, the business of space, problems with clean water in Flint, and many other issues from where the economy meets real life. You can check out all our past shows at Marketplace.org. And that is it for Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Eliza Mills and Peter Balanon-Rosen. Joanne Griffith is our executive producer. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez engineered this episode. Naren Rao composed our theme music. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.